Hello, and welcome to Oddments, the audio program from the College of Curiosity. Now here's your host, Jeff Wag. Hello, and welcome back to Oddments. I'm Jeff Wag, your host. This week, we've got some unusual things to listen to, but we're going to start with Jarrus as he discusses mummies and the First Empire. Jarrus? I told you to leave or die. You refused. Now you may have killed us all. You have unleashed a creature that we have feared for more than 3,000 years. Jeff, you know I do love the bad movies. The Mummy, the Brennan Fraser, Rachel Weiss version, is a lot of fun and not a bad movie at all. The sequel is mm, not as good. The spin-off of the sequel is The Scorpion King, and it is bad. But it did introduce me to Sargon. The Scorpion King starts with the main character, a mercenary, who will become the titular Scorpion King, being identified as an Akkadian. In fact, he is the last of the Akkadians, and all of the other mercenaries are majorly impressed. Because I am the kind of nerd I am, I looked up the Akkadians to see why I was supposed to be impressed. It turns out that these guys were not some fictional tribe made up by the screenwriter but are some important people on the world stage. In fact, they were the first people to start an empire. You might remember the song. The first empire, the historians do tell, was founded by folks who fought like hell. The empire started in the city of Akkad, which we seem to have misplaced. We know that it is somewhere in Mesopotamia. The last time we saw it, it was around Sumer, but uh, we can't seem to remember exactly where it was. However, we've got a lot of information about the Akkadian Empire, because these folks wrote everything down. The Akkadians used a cuneiform writing system, and wrote on clay tablets, which they then baked in the sun, making them a very durable form of record-keeping. And they wrote down everything. I mean, in Mesopotamia, you've got a lot of mud and a lot of sun, so there is no reason not to start on your novel. As a result, we know who started the world's first empire. It was a guy named Sargon. Now, Sargon was a real bastard. Seriously never knew who his father was. He was born in 2334, and he describes his mother as a changeling. This might be because when he was a baby, his mother took a reed basket, sealed it up to make it watertight, put baby Sargon inside it, and floated it down the river. So you can kind of forgive the guy for calling her names. Aki, the water man, found Sargon and raised him as a son. This might sound a little bit like what happened to a guy named Moses about a thousand years later. I can't say that Moses was plagiarizing the cuneiform, if you know what I mean. It could be that this was a common practice. You know, if you have a fussy baby instead of driving him around in a car, you seal him up in a basket and float him in a river. Or maybe this was the first form of the adoption agency. If, for some reason, you are unable to raise your own baby, you float him down the river to a family who can, or to a crocodile, whichever comes first. When Sargon grew up, he became a gardener. Evidently, gardening meant something different in 2330 BCE than it does now. Sargon was in charge of a work gang, which cleared and maintained the irrigation channels, so he had this big group of tough guys who were used to following his orders. You can see where this is going, but let me give you a little dramatization. Hey, Sargon, is something wrong? No, no, I I mean, 
know why. Well, the guys and I were noticing that you've been kind of, you know, down in the dumps lately. Come on, man, open up. Tell me what's wrong. It's, it's nothing. I just, it just seems like I'm not really adding any value. I'm just a, another guy who cleans canals, another cog in the machine. If we had cogs or machines, that is. Well, that's not true. You're a great boss and all the guys love you. Yeah, but that's not enough. I mean, look around. We live in an age of wonders. We have civilization. We have writing. We have agriculture and beautiful pottery. But it's all something someone else is coming up with. I'm just using other people's ideas. I'm not adding anything new or different. Okay, but what what kind of things do you want to invent? Maybe a new kind of shovel? No, no, something bigger, something more important, something that people are going to be using in thousands of years as a jingoistic term for other nations. You know there's a guy in Babylon who is building this huge tower. Sure, he's just doing it to impress his girlfriend, but that's the kind of thing that people are going to be talking about in all of the city-states. City-states? Don't you mean cities-states? Or is it cities-state? Wait a second. City-state! That's it! Okay, okay, we'll all say city-state from now on. No, no, that, that that's not my idea. That's I, I, I now know how I can add some real value. Oh, you're going to write a dictionary or, or a grammar tablet. That's not a bad idea. I could never figure out the plural of crocket. Forget the grammar tablet. Actually, no, remember that. That's a pretty good fallback. What I'm talking about is a new kind of state, one that is made up of a, a bunch of different cities. I, I don't get it. How would that work? I mean, you can only live in one city at a time. How can they both be part of the same city? No, no, not not part of the same cities. Part of the same state. Like if, if Elam and Cush were Elam Cush instead of separate cities. But still, you can only live in one place at a time. How can you be part of the same thing? Are you, are you thinking you want to move cities around? Because I just don't think people are going to go for it. You're right, you're right. We need we need something that ties them together, like uh, a king. How, how about if two cities had the same king, then they would be part of the same state? Hmm, okay, you've piqued my interest. So, so it would work something like this. Say, say we take our shovels and sickles and hoes and uh, we go kill our king. Then we make me king. Then we round up all the able-bodied guys, give them more weapons, and march over to, say, Elam. We break down their walls, make their king say that I'm the king over him and his city. But aren't the folks here just going to put someone else in charge when we're off in Elam? Then, when we get back, there's another king. You, you want to get to be the over-king of both cities. Won't happen. We took all of the people who can fight with us to Elam. There's nobody left to rebel. Right. Good. Uh, but what happens when we come home? We can't bring all the fighters from Elam back here. There's not enough food. As soon as we leave, the king is just going to say, never mind, and then we're back to square one. Oh, yeah. So, how about this? After we finish fighting Elam and make me over king there, we take all the guys from here and all the guys from Elam and go conquer Sumer. Well, if we just beat up the guys in Elam in a fight, why would they want to team up with us? I got it. I got it. See, when we beat Elam, we take all of their stuff and we bring it back here. If the guys from Elam want more stuff, they have to come with us to Sumer. Then we make Sumer part of the state, too. Three cities in one state? I I think that you're stretching. And you haven't solved the problem. You just kicked it down the road. We can't stay in Sumer. The guys from Elam will want to take their new stuff home. 
how are you going to keep the Sumerians from rebelling? It's a self-perpetuating system. From Sumer, we go on to Assyria. From Assyria, we go to Martu, etc., etc. But at some point, we're going to run out of cities, and then it all falls apart. You're thinking too small. Haven't you heard about the Sidonian cities on the coast or the Hittite cities in the mountains? Think about it. In 20 years, you could have stuff from every city you've ever heard of in your house. Okay, okay. I, I guess you got it covered. I think this could work. So, will you do it? Will you help to make me over king and found an empire? Sure. Let me round up some guys and get some shovels. Then we'll go kill the king. Hey, hey man, I I just want to say thanks. This means a lot to me. You know, Sargon, it's just good to see you smiling again. So essentially, Sargon reigned for 56 years and conquered everything between Afghanistan and Canaan. He may even have gone up into the Anatolian Plateau. His kids followed in his footsteps, and the Akkadian Empire lasted for 180 years. Eventually, they fell to a combination of barbarian hordes and climate change. They were having no problems keeping the frontier secured until a small change in climate lowered the rainfall and the river levels, leading to an encroachment of the desert. This reduced the amount of land that could be farmed and the number of people who could be fed within the empire. People started to starve, there weren't enough troops to man the frontier, and the barbarians came swooping in and toppled the government. But the Akkadians had permanently changed the game. The age of the city-state was over. After this, it was one empire after another. The region recovered and the Babylonians started their empire, then the Assyrians, and so on, and so on. Meanwhile, the whole empire idea was spreading and other people were getting into the act. First the Egyptians, then the Greeks, the Carthaginians, then the Romans. Now, we can't say that it was all Sargon. If there had been no Sargon, someone else would probably have come up with the idea. If there was no Mesopotamia, then Egypt would probably have come up with the first empire on their own. So we can't give all the credit or blame to the Akkadians. But it is important to remember the lesson they taught us. Don't trust gardeners. Thank you, Jarrus. One has to wonder, with a name like Sargon, would he have been qualified for any other role other than over-king? I suppose maybe dishwashing detergent or something like that. Next, something completely different. Listen to this sound with no introduction. It lasts a bit over a minute. What you've just heard is Euler's Disc. That's spelled E-U-L-E-R, by the way. 
It's a chromed steel hockey puck, tipped over. The weight of the device combined with the lack of friction causes it to make this remarkable sound. It's basically just spinning down on a flat surface. There is a video of this device in our show notes at collegeofcuriosity.com, and you can purchase them on Amazon. For our puzzle last time, you were asked to identify a feature on this planet that there's exactly one of. It's like a mountain or a river, but with this feature, there's only one of them to be found anywhere. The answer? It's the Everglades, which takes up most of southern Florida. The Everglades is a feature unto itself, a vast body of flowing water some 200 miles wide and only 4 inches deep. While the activities of civilization have drastically changed this feature, it's still a remarkable place to visit. Be careful, though. The Everglades is home to one of the world's deadliest trees, the Manchineal, whose sap causes blisters and in quantity can kill. It's also a habitat hospitable to both alligators and crocodiles. In fact, it's the only place on Earth you can see alligators and crocodiles swimming together in nature. For this week's puzzle, we have a shipwreck. We've heard stories like Robinson Crusoe and Gilligan's Island, but has there ever been a case where a shipwrecked crew set about creating a society? In fact, there is one, and your challenge is to name the unfortunate ship and the waterless island that saved her crew. Mark Twain needs no introduction. Most people have read at least one of his books, and everyone is familiar with his quotes, such as this one. There are three kinds of lies. Lies, damn lies, and statistics. Well, that sounds like something Twain would say, and he did say it in his autobiography, but he also gave credit to the quote's originator, Benjamin Disraeli. People tend to associate any witty quote to Twain, which is perhaps completely fair. Recently, some film footage of Twain came to light. Twain had a keen interest in technology and was friends with many of the greatest minds of the day. One of these was Thomas Edison, who made a brief movie of Twain walking on a path in front of his Connecticut home while smoking a cigar. As with all films of 1910, it's a silent film, so we don't get to hear Twain's voice. However, it is known that Twain did record his voice on another of Edison's devices, the phonograph. He was attempting to dictate his story, The American Claimant, into the device, but after filling nearly 50 wax cylinders with his own voice, he abandoned the project, saying that the device was no good for literature. So at one time there was over an hour of Twain's voice recorded. Sadly, those recordings have not been found, and I can't share them with you today. I can, however, share with you the next best thing. Another of Twain's friends was fellow Connecticut Yankee William Gillette. And while you may not recognize that name, at the turn of the 20th century, he was the toast of the theater world, presenting the then-contemporary Adventures of Sherlock Holmes. William Gillette was a famed mimic and knew Twain well. It's likely he also took a turn or two impersonating his friend, and in fact, we have recordings of just such a thing. In 1934, while gathered for a group of Harvard students, a speech professor was on hand to record this. 
Have you even saw a straddlebug start to go anywhere? He bet on where he was going, and he'd follow that straddlebug from Mexico before he found out where he was going and how long he was on the voyage. <laughs> old Parson Walker's wife lay very ill once and for a long time. It looked like they weren't going to save her. But one day, the parson come in kind of lively-like, and one of the boys said, well, how's the wife, parson? And he said, well, she's considerable better, thanks the Lord for his infinite mercy. And with the help of providence, she did well yet. Well, I bet you two to one she don't anyhow, sister. Smiling before he thought a word about it. Some of you may recognize that as the text from The Celebrated Frog of Calaveras County, one of Twain's pivotal works. You can find a link to the entire recording in our show notes at collegeofcuriosity.com. Another note on William Gillette. He left a legacy you're likely familiar with. If you imagine Sherlock Holmes wearing what looks like two baseball caps at the same time, one backwards, you can thank Gillette for that interpretation. The hat is known as a deerstalker cap, and Gillette thought it would be the perfect attire for a man who spent his life stalking clues. A special shout-out this time to Trent Brusky. He's provided music for several episodes of Oddments now under a project he calls Drop Fox. It works like this. He makes music, and you use it in your podcast. It's his way of giving to the community, and we thank him for it. You can find out more on Facebook by searching for Drop Fox as one word. Thank you for listening to Oddments a production from the College of Curiosity. Contact us with any corrections or questions at collegeofcuriosity.com. And remember, helium on Earth is radiogenic, meaning it's the byproduct of radioactive decay of uranium and other elements. Think about that the next time you see a balloon. This show was written and performed by Jeff Wagg and Jaris Durnett.